you will, take your Bibles, let's turn together to the letter of 1 John. If you go to the back of the Bible and find the maps and the concordance and then the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll miss Jude, it's probably one page, but then you'll go to 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, we want to introduce a new sermon series today, 1 John, that you may know. As you're finding that, let me just make mention of the Myers-Mallory not only offering, but this is the week of prayer. On the front of your bulletin, the very first prayer note, there's a website there. You can go to that Myers-Mallory website. Uh, You can click on week of prayer, and you can sign up for a daily email that will help you pray on point with Alabama Baptist as we pray for uh, the Myers-Mallory efforts that go into uh, disaster relief, uh, Women's Missionary Union and those ministries, church planning and revitalization, those things will be the emphases that we'll pray for this week. 1 John chapter 1, we'll look at the prologue today, the introduction, as we look at verses 1 through 4. But here's what I want to ask before I read the introduction. Do you know for certain that you have eternal life and that you will go to heaven when you die? In other words, we could ask, do you know that you know that you know that you know that you are born again? When we read and examine and study the letter of 1 John from Scripture, this letter will help reassure believers of your salvation, that it is real, that it is authentic, that it's genuine. 1 John is going to take us back to some of the basics of our Christianity, the fundamentals of our faith, and the writer is going to deal with certainties not uncertainty. So with that in mind, if you're able to stand, let's honor the reading of God's Word as you stand. I'll read aloud. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. The Bible says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will give us ears to hear what you want us to hear. And Father, by your Spirit, the Spirit of truth, give us not only ears to hear and understanding of what we hear, grant us a desire to obey. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. Enable us, Father, to be faithful followers of Christ that bear the mark of those who are truly born again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I'm glad First John's going to offer us some certainties because life is definitely full of uncertainty, right? 
Even in the life that we've had at Liberty Baptist this past week, we're reminded that life is full of uncertainties. But every day there are uncertainties, uncertainties of health, uncertainties of finance, uncertainties of the economy, uncertainties of relationships, maybe the threat of war, maybe unemployment, maybe the uncertainty of our children, uncertainty of politics, and if you can figure that one out, let me know. Maybe even uncertainty in the path of storms that come, such as the hurricane that is brewing and and facing our nation, and, and we're praying for those in the path of Hurricane Irma. Though uncertainties are common to all, there's something else that's common to all of us. At least I think it is. It's that desire to know, that desire to have assurance in the midst of an uncertain world. We just want to know that we're going to be okay. Is anybody else out there like that? I have something deep within me. I just want to know that it's going to be okay. Now, here's the good news through Scripture is that we can know that it's going to be okay about our salvation. You don't have to doubt it. You don't have to guess about it. You don't have to wonder about it. Now, I want to take your, uh, take your Bible and go to John, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. This is a key verse, a strategic verse, because verse 13 of chapter 5 gives us a unifying purpose of this letter. John says once again, these things I have written to you on the backside. We're dealing with the introduction or prologue today. This is the conclusion or the epilogue in verse 13 of chapter 5. He said, these things I have written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may what? Know that you have what? Eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. It is good news that we do not have to be uncertain about where we will spend eternity. Thus, the theme for the series is, 1 John, that you may know, that you may have reassurance. And there are plenty of people in the world today that really believe that you cannot know with certainty whether or not you're born again, whether or not you're a Christian or where you will spend eternity. According to them, you just have to wait until you die to find out if you're going to get to heaven or not. Uh, That's a pretty sad commentary from my perspective. But God does not want His children to worry. He does not want us to doubt. He does not want us to lack assurance about whether or not we are born again. So in this letter, John allows us to see some tests, some marks of genuine belief are authentic believers. And people differ in many ways around the world. We're different in culture many times, in diet, what we eat, and skin color, and many other things. But some things are true about human beings no matter where they live. Every human being breathes. Every human being eats. Some too much. Every human being sleeps. Every human being drinks water, right? The same is true about the spiritual realm of those who are human beings. Believers may fly under different banners of denomination, but all genuine believers have some things in common, no matter what. So our journey through the New Testament book of 1 John will unpack some of these things. 
that all genuine believers have in common. Are you still with me? So John, on your sermon notes, John the Apostle, one of the original 12 disciples, is the author of 1 John. John, the younger brother of James, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, those whom Jesus nicknamed sons of what? Thunder. At the same time of, at the time of the writing, John was probably the only surviving member of the twelve, and he is the only one historically who did not die a martyr's death. As we think about John the Apostle, we know that he wrote five books of the New Testament. The gospel narrative of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he wrote that gospel. We also know that in that gospel, he looks back to the past to present the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he wrote these letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and they concern the present, and they help teach us how we live out life here and now in the culture that we're living in. And we know he wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ, which looks to the future and shows how God will complete history by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that John spent his latter years in and around the city of Ephesus. This letter is believed to be more of a general letter that circulated probably more than to one church context, most likely circulating around the churches of Asia Minor. The date of this letter is kind of hard to pin down, but somewhere in the ballpark of A.D. 85 to 90. The church that John is looking into, writing to, is filled now with second and third generation believers or Christians. For some of these second and third generation believers, persecution has become very harsh and very real. For others, their passion and drive, their love for Jesus has cooled off. Still for others, they have been exposed to false teachers and false teaching, and as a result of that, some of those believers had lowered the standard of holiness that Christ had called them to, and their lifestyles have begun to embrace sinful living. It is into these circumstances that the Apostle John interjects this letter to either a church or a group of churches. And here's what I like about John the Apostle. He is not afraid to engage the culture of his day with the truth of the Word of God. There's a lesson there for us and for the body of Christ today. As we read and study this letter, there are two primary objectives that will rise uh, to the top. Two major occasions that John is dealing with. Number one, he writes to combat false teachers. That's going to become real clear in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 that we'll study. Secondly, he writes to reassure believers that you may know. And so these are overarching themes that as we study 1 John, you'll begin to see them rise to the top. He's combating false teachers and teaching. He is reassuring believers. There are four specific times in this letter that John makes a statement like this. I write that you may. I write these things so that. And let me just itemize them. In fact, they're on your sermon notes. Chapter 1, verse 4 that we read just a moment ago. That your joy may be full. So John writes to promote true joy in the child of God. We'll talk about that at the end of the message. Chapter 2, verse 1, he writes to prevent the child of God from committing sin. Now, that does not mean we become sinless. 
and absolutely perfect without sin, but he's writing to help us understand we're no longer under the bondage of sin and we can choose not to. So in in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I write that you may not sin. In chapter 2, verse 26, he says, I write concerning those who tried to deceive you. So the purpose is to protect the child of God from false teachers. So I'm writing to promote true joy, to prevent the child of God from committing sin, to protect you from false teachers. And again in chapter 5 and verse 13, to provide assurance of salvation for the child of God that you may know. So the letter of 1 John lays out for believers foundational nature of truth and love within the context of a local body of believers. Now, many have said there are three litmus tests that are in 1 John. There's the truth test, doctrine, what we believe. It does matter. There is the moral test, obedience, how we behave. And what you believe dictates how you behave, right? And then there's the social test, how it's played out. That how we love, how we love God, how we love others. And so those are some litmus tests as we examine this letter of 1 John that we're going to look at truth, what is truth. We're going to look at moral test, what does that mean and how we live our life. And we're going to look at the social test, how it applies to our love for God and our love for others. So here's a good statement. A proper belief in Jesus produces obedience to his commands. A proper belief in Jesus produces obedience to his commands. Obedience fuels love for God and fellow believers. When right doctrine and obedience and love cooperate together, they result in joy and happiness and assurance in the life of the believer. And so John is showing us this picture that that right doctrine and that right obedience and, and that right perspective of love will result in a real joy, a, a holiness in the life of believers and an assurance in the life of believers. So they constitute the evidence, the litmus test of a true Christian. Now verses 1 through 4, prologue of the letter. The structure here is a little weird. At least it's hard for me to figure out. It's a little bit unusual in the original language. What is exactly is John trying to say? Look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Notice after verse 1, at least in the King James Ver- New King James Version, there's a dash after verse 1. And then that dash, uh, there's another dash after verse 2, which gives us an indicator as we read and try to figure out this text. uh, Verse 2 is kind of a parenthesis in between verse 1 and verse 3. And so that parenthetical statement talks about the life that was manifested. We have seen, we bear witness, we declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. And then look at verse 3. It goes back kind of to the end thought of verse 1. That, that as we look at verse 1, he says, concerning the word of life, and then you pick up in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard. And so what it follows is the main verb, and I want you to mark that main verb. 
That which we have seen and heard, what is that? The word of life. And so that which we've seen or heard, what do we do? John says we proclaim or we declare to you. So we declare to you is the main verb in the paragraph that we're dealing with. And so John's purpose is to declare to you, to me, the word of life. Maybe it will be easier to understand if we read it this way and kind of put it in the order that we talk. We proclaim to you that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen, that which we have looked upon, that which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Does that kind of bring a little bit of clarity to it? So John is saying we're going to proclaim or declare to you the word of life. And so what does that mean? There are two points on your outline Uh, the rest of your sermon notes that just naturally come out of the text. The first one is the proclamation of the person, the proclamation of the person who is Jesus, who is the word of life, verses 1 through 3. John says again, that which was from the beginning. The antecedent of that is the word of life, or that refers to the word of life. Although John does not name Jesus until the end of verse 3, the word of life clearly in this context refers to Jesus. Make that connection. One of John's favorite descriptions for Jesus is the word, right? The gospel narrative begins in verse 1, chapter 1 of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. When John says that Jesus was from the beginning, it begs us to ask the question, which beginning? Now, at first you might say, well, that's a silly question, but it's really not. It's a deep question. Which beginning is he talking about? Is it the beginning of Jesus' earthly life or perhaps the beginning of creation? Jesus' existence did not begin when he was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. You do know that, right? Jesus was not a created being like the angels before the creation of the heavens and the earth. Before history began, Jesus was there. You need to know that. John's beginning goes all the way back to eternity past. This is a statement about the eternal pre-existence of the deity of Jesus the eternal pre-existence of the deity of Jesus. Dr. R.G. Lee, great preacher in our heritage and former pastor of Bellevue Baptist in Memphis, Tennessee, he would often say it this way, Jesus was the only man who had a heavenly father but no heavenly mother, who had an earthly mother but no earthly father, who was older than his mother and who was as old as his father. Did you get it? So Jesus is fully God. He is eternal. He was pre-existent. On the surface, it may seem strange for John to tell us that he and the apostles heard, saw, touched, looked at, and handled the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would he start a letter with that kind of terminology? Why those statements? Why does John use so many verbs of perception? I saw, I heard, I touched, I looked upon, I gazed, I I handled. One answer, I think, 
has to be with a direct connection to a new way of thinking or a new philosophy that was beginning to gain, uh, gain some momentum in, at the end of the first century. And this new way of thinking was called Gnosticism. And the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And so first, Gnosticism was a false teaching that taught that the way of salvation was through a secret or superior knowledge granted only to the initiated or those special ones, those elite ones. Secondly, the Gnostics falsely taught that your physical body is evil, but the spiritual person, that spiritual soul, is good. And so there were a couple of eras that resulted from this false teaching. And the first era was very practical. False teaching taught Christians wrong ways to live their life. Christians caught up in the false teaching would, would uh, manifest uh, that, that belief in false teaching in one or two ways. Two extremes. The first extreme was called asceticism. A-S-C-E-T-I-C-I-S-M. Asceticism. Where you begin to punish your body. Why in the world would you punish your body? Well, if you believe the body is evil, you punish the body to release that which is good, the spirit. But that was an extreme uh, uh, action from a false teaching. Now, the second extreme is licentiousness, L-I-C-E-N-T-I-O-U-S-N-E-S-S. You've seen that word before, licentiousness. It's a word that means you can live any way you want. After all, if your body is evil and your spirit is good, then it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Rules don't matter. You can live any way you want to because the body is evil. It does not matter, how, what, uh, matter much what you do with your body. Now, let me just stop and ask a question. Is Gnosticism still alive today? Any Gnostics in the church today? Absolutely. And the problem is most of them just don't know what they're called, but Gnosticism is alive in a well. So on the one hand, John is confronting Gnosticism, which was promoting sinful living among believers. And Jesus promoted holiness, right living according to truth. Now, Gnosticism led to two doctrinal errors. Those were practical, the way that they were fleshed out in behavior. But there are two doctrinal errors that, that arose and became a problem in the early church. First of all, and this on your sermon notes, is the docetic area, era, the docetic era. Docetic comes from the Greek word dokio, which means to seem or to appear. So if the body is evil, then God, who is spirit, cannot have contact with the body. You see where it's going? So this false belief threatens the incarnation of Jesus, God in the flesh. You can't have the incarnation of Christ if docetic Gnosticism is true. You could not have God becoming man. So the docetic Gnostics taught that Jesus did not have a literal human body. They denied the real humanity of Jesus. Houston, we have a problem. Because they denied the humanity of Jesus, 
there could not be a Savior who identified with you and me. And there's a problem with that. And so now we begin to understand why in the world, right out of the gate, would John begin to say, that which we saw, that which we heard, that which we gazed upon, that which we touched, that which we clung to, him we declare to you. Now you begin to understand why he's saying, I saw, I heard, I'm a witness of. But there's a second doctrinal error, and that's the Serinthian Gnosticism. Serenthus was a contemporary of John, and he taught that matter was evil, therefore the body is evil, but that the spirit is good. Now, here's the twist in the teaching of Serenthus. He taught that Jesus had a real human body. In fact, he taught that he was just an ordinary man, not God in the human flesh. Joseph was his real father. Mary was his real mother. Therefore, Jesus had a real body. You see, there's a problem brewing here. As Jesus ba- at Jesus' baptism, what Serenthius taught is that's when the Holy Spirit came upon him, and that's when he became the Christ. He abided with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry until he was hanging on the cross, and he uttered the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the Spirit of God left that ordinary body of the man, Jesus. But here's the problem. If Jesus was a mere man, just like you and me, how could he die for our sins? And so this wrong view of Christ destroys the biblical doctrine of atonement. On one hand, you destroy the incarnation of Christ, God in the flesh. On the other hand, you destroy the work of Christ on the cross that atones for our sin. So such heretical views destroy not only the humanity of Jesus, but also the atonement for Jesus must not only have been truly God, but he must have been truly man. Man who actually suffered and died on the cross in order to be the acceptable substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. So the biblical view of Jesus affirms his actual humanity as well as his full deity in one person. Fully God, fully man in one person. We okay? So if Jesus were not fully human, his death in our place would be meaningless. If Jesus were not fully God, he could not have borne the full penalty for sin for the whole world. And if he didn't bear the full penalty of sin for the world as a sinless man, there would be no valid payment for anyone's sins and nobody could be saved and we of all people will be most miserable. And so we would be in a world of hurt. Look at verse 1 again. John says, we have heard, we have seen. Who is we? John refers to himself and other eyewitnesses. It is significant that in Scripture, the truth that we have about Jesus comes from those who were firsthand eyewitnesses. He refers to himself as an eyewitness of Jesus' earthly ministry which would include also the other apostles. Note that the first two verbs are are in a different tense than the last two. In the Greek, it's perfect tense. That doesn't mean anything, but this is what is important. Indicating a completed action in the past with an impact in the present. 
So in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, in present tense, it means something that took place in the past that still has impact in the present. And so what John said is, we have heard and we have seen. Hold on to that. The next two verbs, looked, ed, upon, and touched. These are aorist tense in the Greek, what we think about as past tense. And the shift in tense is a change of focus from the continuing effect of what was heard and seen to the focus of the historical event. I don't think that's an accident. I think that's by the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God to guide this holy man of God to write in two different tenses to say not only is it something that is historical and literally happened in the past that this Jesus is a historical man, fully man, fully God in one person, but also I saw and I heard it happened in the past and I'm still changed today because of what happened in the past. And so what John was saying is maybe something like this. What I heard from Jesus many years ago is still ringing in my ears as clear as a bell today as when I first heard it. Maybe. He is saying, what I saw many years ago when Jesus was on earth is as clear and vivid to me today as it was then. We looked upon Jesus. We touched him with our hands in specific times, in specific places in the past. To add to all this, John uses two different Greek words for seeing. We saw him and we looked upon him. The second verb, we looked upon, is more than just seeing with your eye. It's more than a glance. It suggests careful attention, a gaze, or an examination. So the word involves more than the glance or the quick look. Instead, it denotes that long examination, that searching gaze upon Jesus. It is the same verb that is in the New King James Version translated beheld in John's gospel narrative, chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, even the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So beyond the works that Jesus performed, John and the other apostles watched him intently for several years and saw the stunning and unmistakable realities He's not just a man, he's God. But he is not just God, he's also a man in one person, fully God, fully man in one person. Finally, John stresses that he and other eyewitnesses had touched Jesus with their hands. And and so that just erases that he only appeared to be, seemed to be human. No, we've touched him. And, and we have uh, been around him and, and watched him. So this is John's way of stressing the reality of the physical body of Jesus. He stresses the historical reality of Jesus' incarnation. God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, and one person. Y'all okay? He stresses this at the beginning because everything else is going to be hinging off of a correct view of who Jesus Christ is. Now verse 2. This life was manifest, means to be made visible, to be seen and understood. How was this word of life life made visible and understandable? 
at the incarnation and through Jesus' earthly life. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John makes three statements in verse 2. We have seen, we bear witness, and we declare that eternal life. John does not use the name Jesus until the end of verse 3, but he describes Jesus with two further statements in verse 1. He was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That phrase, with the Father, is the same phrase John used in John 1.1 in his gospel. Are you still with me? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with, there it is, God. So that preposition in the Greek text conveys the idea of being face to face with someone. John is emphasizing two things by that phrase. First, he is equating Jesus with God in terms of deity. Second, he is not combining them into one person, but is emphasizing that though they, there is one divine nature, God and Jesus are distinct divine persons. That's important. It fits into that doctrine of the Trinity that one day we'll wrestle with, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But to deny the distinct personhood of the Father and of the Son is to fall into a doctrinal error that we have learned through history called modalism, which teaches that there is one God who appears in three different ways, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a heresy because it denies that the three distinct persons of the Trinity. Hang on to that. We'll come back one day to that. The final statement of verse 2. Y'all okay? We're digging hard, trying to get a foundation. Final statement in verse 2 repeats the beginning statement in, in the verse. Was manifested to us. John was emphasizing the fact of the incarnation, which is how Jesus and his salvation is made known so that people could understand that eternal life is wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Eternal life is wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. John is saying, I'm an eyewitness. I listened to him. I gazed on him. I touched him to such an extent that I virtually memorized this man. I could close my eyes and hear his voice, and I knew who he was. Maybe I could close my eyes and hear him walking, and I knew the pace and rhythm of his walk. Maybe I could close my eyes and feel his touch, and I could identify that's my Jesus. And so John is saying, I knew him personally, and I testify to the reality of Jesus through whom I found eternal life. Not only did I know him historically, not only did I get to know him intimately, but my life was changed inwardly. I received eternal life through him. So John is not testifying and proclaiming that Jesus uh, brings forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Uh, eternal, John is testifying. Did I say not? John is testifying that Jesus brings forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Now, eternal life is not just life in length of time. But it's also, in this term that is used here, 
means quality of life. It's not just that you will live eternally when you die. We're all created to live eternally. But right now, you can have eternal life as a child of God. John 10.10 is now and later. Uh, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundant. That's today and forever, today and for all eternity. God's life dwells in you. That's today. Here in Jesus Christ is the solution to the problem of how sinful people can know God and be rightly related to Him. Hang on to this. The vast expanse that abides between a holy God and sinful mankind is bridged by the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. There's only one way that 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 vast expanse can be overcome, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, salvation and eternal life are available through Christ, the one who was fully God, fully man, and the same person. Number two. The second thing that just flows out of here is the declaration of the purpose. And then we've said it, but we're going to look at it in the text. And in the last part of verse 3 and then verse 4, John writes in verse 3, the last part, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Thank you for doing that, John. John turns right back to that thought in verse 1. In other words, he declares that the Jesus I saw and heard many years ago is the Jesus I have been proclaiming and continue to proclaim to you. John was both an eyewitness and an ear witness. He saw and he heard. Verse 3 provides the reason why John is proclaiming Jesus to his readers. That you also may have fellowship. There it is, fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That word fellowship is used several times in the gospel narrative of John. And the word may lose its value in our Christian vocabulary today. We like to have fellowship. When we Baptists talk about having fellowship, we think about coffee and donuts, maybe biscuits. But fellowship is bigger than that. The biblical word fellowship means more than that. And so you've probably heard the Greek word for fellowship, koinonia. It signifies a mutual participation in a common cause or a shared life, living life together. That's koinonia, that's fellowship. So the root meaning is a deep sharing of things we have in common. Fellowship was that which all Christians share and celebrate that's in common. Uh, what is it that believers share in common? First and foremost, salvation. We have a bond in Christ. We share Jesus in common. Belief in Jesus brings about salvation that places us in fellowship with all other believers everywhere. So no matter where we go, if there's a brother or sister in Christ, we have something in common with them that we were sinners who were saved by grace through faith in Christ. We also have other things in common. We struggle, 
but we have strength and sufficiency in Christ. We have other things in common. We have a mission in common to go ye therefore and make disciples. We have a commission to serve in common. We will suffer if we take on the name of Christ. We have that in common. That's why we are to live life together in that koinonia and community and fellowship to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Now, fellowship has a couple of priorities. There's vertical and there's horizontal. John teaches that fellowship is not only with other believers, horizontal, but it's also with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. There's your vertical. John implies in this statement that fellowship with God is not possible apart from fellowship with Jesus. Fellowship with God is not going to happen without fellowship with Jesus. You cannot be in fellowship with God, but not in fellowship with His Son, Jesus. Think of fellowship as a genuine spiritual connection with God and other believers. Now, John has learned from Jesus that fellowship with God and Christ is a matter of a deep sharing of things in common. That's what friends do. Jesus called them His friends. As to the privilege, fellowship with God is communion with God. Our fellowship with God carries responsibility. Fellowship with God means we, we've gone into business with God, if you will. That he, His enterprises are our enterprises. Fellowship with God means that we share mutual interest with Him, uh, devotion to Him, activity that He calls us into. As Christians in close fellowship with God, His heartbeat becomes our heartbeat. His mission becomes our mission. His goals and plans become our goals and plans. We grow to love what He loves and hate what He hates and, and, and will what He wills. The Christian life should be an ever-deepening fellowship with God that creates and reproduces within us the mind of Christ. The answer to life's meaning and purpose is found in the meaning of this fellowship with God and fellowship with those in the kingdom of God. If Christianity is anything, it is a personal relationship with God who made us through His Son, who became one of us and paid the price for our sins on the cross. Finally, verse 4, John says, Also, I write to you that your joy may be full. Jesus talked a lot about joy. Uh, he spoke uh, at least four different times in the gospel about his joy and his joy in us. Uh, who is included that your joy, or some translations will say our joy, may be full? Uh, all genuine believers there. John's joy will be complete when he shares mutual fellowship with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The phrase may be full, permanently full, permanently filled. John says, in essence, when we have fellowship with you, our joy is full. In other words, there's an implication. If you're not in community with the body of Christ, your joy is not going to be totally full. John speaks of joy in all three of his letters. Jesus speaks of joy in relationship to his disciples. Different times, three distinct times in his farewell discourse, um, in his prayer and John's gospel narrative. In all three examples, Jesus is concerned that disciples' joy might be full or fulfilled. Jesus speaks of my joy remaining in the disciples, that my joy might be fulfilled in them, in the disciples. 
So Christian joy, we know, is far removed from circumstances or just sheer happiness. Happiness is dependent on circumstances. It can certainly include happiness, but Christian joy is much deeper and richer. Joy is the presence of Jesus in our lives by means of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Joy describes a reality in the life of genuine satisfaction intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. So we must have that vertical relationship connected in Christ in order for that joy to abide within us. But we also need a connection with the horizontal relationship with the body of Christ in order that that joy may be full. So joy is that spirit of exaltation regardless of the circumstances. It's a sense of supernatural strength that can only come from the Lord. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is the response of the soul that is rightly related to God through the knowledge of Christ as our Savior and Lord. Let me say that one again. Joy is the response of that soul, the inner being, that is rightly related to God through the knowledge of Christ as our Savior and Lord. So proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ produces fellowship, and fellowship produces joy. Now let me ask you, do you know that you know that you know that you've been born again? Do you know for certain that you will go to heaven when you die? We have an eyewitness that is telling us This Jesus is the real deal. He's not only historical and and he lived on earth as a man, but he also was God who came to earth, wrapped up in human flesh, fully God and fully man. But he not only just came and was born miraculously and lived a sinless life before us and, and did miracles in front of us and taught us the way of the kingdom of God, but this man, this man we saw take a cross lay down his life, shed his blood to die in our place to pay the penalty for our own sin. This man, this Jesus, was laid in a tomb. But on the third day, this man, this Jesus, the same one, came up out of the grave on the third day, and he is alive forevermore. And this Jesus, the word of life, can grant eternal life. No one else can, but this man can. And John says, I tell you this because I saw him. I tell you this because I heard him. I tell you this because I touched him before his uh, crucifixion and after his resurrection. But I tell you this, because he's changed me on the inside and I'm not the same. Do you know the same? Let's pray together. Father, by your Spirit, search our hearts that we may know the same. May we know that we know, based upon the assurance of your word, that we are the children of God. And Father, if not, by your Holy Spirit, draw us, convict us as to what we need to do to be obedient. Father, for some, there's an empty decision of years gone by. Maybe as an innocent child who raised their hand and prayed a prayer and didn't understand what was going on. Maybe someone who walked the aisle and told the preacher they wanted to be saved and they were baptized, but really nothing internally happened. They didn't wrap around what was going on. Maybe they've just grown up in church and thought that being churched was enough, but they've never been born again. Father, only you see the heart, and only by your Spirit can men and women and boys and girls be drawn to you 
And so we ask of you, continue that good work, drawing men and women and boys and girls to you for salvation. Father, let those who think they're okay and not okay be convicted. And let those that are truly born again, your children, be confirmed. But Father, I pray that you will give us the confidence that we need in Christ so that we can be faithful witnesses. Without confidence, we're not going to say anything to anyone because we just don't know. But when we know that we know that we know, we'll be bold to proclaim. And so let us know firsthand. And Father, may it start today. Ignite a fire within us. Bring revival in our heart for the true children of God in the church. And Father, in this time of decision, give us boldness to be obedient in Jesus' name. Amen.